Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here, Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular dive into all things Brexit. Back from a week off for Easter with a spring in its step and a smile on its lips, because after a couple of weeks of quiet, both Westminster and Brussels have basically been off too, things are starting to get interesting again. So, as technical talks on the withdrawal agreement roll on, looking at tricky stuff like public procurement, Euratom and governance, negotiators will sit down this week for the very first time to talk about what trade ties between Britain and the European Union will look like after Brexit. Meanwhile, back in the UK, MPs from the four main parties have launched a determined push for a people's vote, most definitely not a second referendum, on the broad outline of what that relationship is likely to be. With me to discuss all this are The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts, currently convalescing at home after a knee operation, I'm not sure whether it's performed by an EU doctor, and from Brussels, Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to you both. Uh, Jennifer, let's start with uh, just a very quick update on those technical talks, can we? Snoozeworthy as they sound. Uh, can you tell us at what stage we're at with those, what the main areas of contention are, whether they might hold things up at all? Well, snoozeworthy for some, but we, we love technical talks uh, here on Brexit Means. And, <laughs> yeah. and today we are in deep technical waters. And as we're recording this podcast, EU officials are, are meeting with their UK counterparts to discuss some of the, the sort of finer technical details of the withdrawal agreement, covering issues such as the, the ownership of fissile materials located on the territory of the UK, or will the UK carry out intellectual property registrations free of charge after Brexit? Hmm. So these are, these 
these are the, the fine detailed issues that we're getting into, the issues that were never on the side of the bus or discussed in Wembley Stadium, but will still all have to be agreed before the UK leaves the EU. It's the real nitty gritty, is it? Exactly. And these are, so these are sort of like the, the 25% of issues in the withdrawal agreement that have so far not to be agreed and are still to be agreed. And it does seem to be the case that at the moment the EU are focusing on the, the easier, low-hanging fruit issues, and we still have the trickier issues to resolve, notably governance. Hmm. Um, well, can you just explain governance? Governance is who is going to be the who's going to have the final say when the UK or if the UK and the EU have a dispute about the withdrawal and the sort of post-Brexit relationship. And the uh, the EU would like the European Court of Justice to be the final arbiter. So the idea is that there will be a, a joint uh, panel with representatives from both sides. But if that joint panel can't find an agreement, then it goes up to the European Court of Justice. And the EU say this is essential because the ECJ is part of the EU. But for the UK, that's precisely the problem. Mm. The ECJ is part of the EU and, and Theresa May has vowed to be free of the ECJ, although we've already seen some concessions on the issue of citizens' rights. But there are a whole sort of that's only part of the, um, the withdrawal agreement. So when it comes to any future disputes on the, the financial mm. settlement, for instance, there, there needs to be some kind of mechanism where both sides can agree how these disputes right. will be handled. So that's the, that's the nub of that issue. And that's, that's probably, that's certainly one of the most tricky issues still to be agreed. And Ireland, of course, is the other. Is the other, yes. And is there, I mean, leaving Ireland aside, we'll come to that in, in, in a bit later, but is there, I mean, is there serious concern that any of this might really throw a, a, a you know, a, a major spanner in the works? I, I don't think so at the moment, but it's it's not obvious um, who's going to give ground because at the moment both sides are very entrenched in their positions. And, but I think it's fair to say most of the worry is really about solving the Irish issue. And there's, but there's somehow an expectation that the other issues will be solved. But yet we're not on the on this governance issue, the ECJ. We're not seeing either side moving. Mm. So I mean, this still could be a a very a very difficult issue to to hold up the talks at the right. last minute. So we don't really know. Uh, we can't really see a path out of that at the moment. OK, well, well let's move on anyway to the, to the future relationship, um, which, um, of course, the two sides are going to start talking about for the very first time formally um, this week. Uh, now, I mean, it seems to me it's not very clear how much they can get done or actually, in fact, how much they might want to get done before the end of March 2019 when Britain leaves. Uh, I mean, there are still very deep divisions in the UK, aren't there, Dan, about about what exactly Britain should be aiming for. Uh, I mean, I mean, the Institute of Directors was just the latest group last week to call for the closest possible relationship to be maintained between Britain and the UK after Brexit, because the EU is where the most business growth has been over the past couple of years. But that's not the view of, a, of another faction in the government. I mean, is this going to be resolved? No, I mean, I think the the key thing, as you as you indicated towards the end of your question, is that even within the government, there's a there's a, a, a still a, a lot of disagreement over this, and a disagreement over tactics as well. It appears that David Davis um, is still aiming high in terms of wanting to get very substantive talks um, agreed by mm. the end of the year on the future relationships. Ollie Robbins, as we know, is tending to run things more day to day and reports directly to Theresa May. I think is taking a, a line a bit more like that of Brussels and and 
being a bit more pragmatic about what can be done. So never putting aside what you want to happen, even just how you get there is still um, very much up for grabs. I suspect the Ollie Robbins Brussels axis will prevail, mainly because that's how that's what's prevailed at every other juncture <laughs> yes. um, over the last um, 12 18 months um, and that we will err on the side of vagueness um, that won't come to as a shock to many of our listeners but I suspect that's where mm. we will be heading but um, uh, th- you know these things are coming to a head and um, each incremental fudge brings us a little more clarity and I think these technical talks that Jennifer talked about are important in that regard the biggest battle is one of boredom i think it's the one of keeping everybody engaged so mm. that the the wall can't be pulled over eyes that we can't just sort of pretend this isn't happening and that, that's that that's the big challenge i think right now yeah okay um now i mean i mean it's obviously important at, at least for business and possibly for voters which we'll come to in a bit that there is at least some flesh on the bones of this future deal before Britain leaves, as as you just said, Dan uh, David Davis, the Brexit Brexit secretary, is very keen to get as much detail as possible, and he even said last week that MPs could veto the whole withdrawal agreement if the future relationship, which is of course a, a part of that withdrawal agreement, isn't laid out with enough clarity. But there are also plenty of reasons why details of the end state as it's also called, might necessarily or by choice be left quite vague. Uh, Jennifer, Michel Barnier, the EU's negotiator, said last week that the UK might decide in the end to pursue a much closer relationship during during that two-year transition period after it's left. Um, and that, you know, would, would certainly suit quite a few of the EU27 members who are worried about the impact of Brexit on their trade with Britain once, once the UK leaves. I mean, is there a sense in Brussels um, and around the capitals that uh, actually it might be best not to kind of tie things down too tightly um, in the withdrawal agreement as as regards the, the sort of the end state, the, the, the future relationship, so as to leave room for more more manoeuvre when the talks really get underway? Very, very much so. And, and I think for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, because the EU still think there's a possibility that the, the UK might change its mind. And, and that's where it really what uh, Michel Barnier was referring to. He, the EU has devised something that is known here as the evolution clause, which would allow the UK to really to, to change its mind and then the EU to, to change its stance in, in response to that. So Barnier was keen to stress that other options are, are still on the table. So it, you know, we can imagine that means the, the customs union or the, or the single mm. market. So, so I think that there is a sense among officials of not wanting to close the door. But also, it, I think for the EU itself, it's not, it's not helpful or seen as desirable to have a very detailed discussion as to what the future relationship might hold. I think that would that would create too many tensions within the EU, mm. but also there's a there's a, a feeling that this is really the, something a discussion that should be happening after the UK has left the EU. And for now, there isn't there isn't really much appetite for getting into the details of the future relationship. And, and some diplomats are even saying that um, that the future relationship talks in the next six months are really going to be about the EU agreeing on its own position mm. rather than the UK negotiating with the EU. So I think this, this is really a sort of at odds with what we've, 
we've heard for a long time that, you know, now we're talking about the future relationship, when in fact for many in the EU this is just about uh, deciding on their own internal position. Exactly. I mean, and are there any signs of, you know, of of what Britain has has been sort of counting on for a long time now of of, of divisions arising, you know, within the bloc among individual member states about what exactly they, they want from a future deal? Not, not really in, in Brussels. I mean, you, you did see a, a sense of a different ideas when it comes to financial services. That was one very clear example when you had France, who were very much wanting to defend the, the, the Barnier opening position, that we're not going to offer the UK anything on financial services. Mm. And then you had Luxembourg with its big financial services industry, which is very integrated into London, saying, well, hang on a second, let's not be too hasty here. So between the, the, the two of them, they, they cobbled together a, an, an amendment and agreed some language that was put into an annex. But I don't think we'll see sort of much development on that in, in the next few few months. And, and it's worth adding that this, as we're recording this podcast, just the day before the UK and the EU are, are to start having a discussion on the future relationship. Mm. But again, for the EU side, they're, they're really portraying this as not a discussion, but them explaining the EU position. So it's just another reminder that things in Brexit land move very slowly indeed, and that it, it's going to take some time yet before I think we get into the substance. Right. Um, I mean, Dan, on, on this question of, uh, you know, of, of, of vagueness, do you get the impression that there are some on the UK side too who, who would prefer not to see their hands tied with a very precise text on the on the future deal? And despite what, what David Davis is saying, I mean, some officials apparently are sort of even whispering that there might be scope for the, you know, for the, for the Theresa May's red line on the on the customs union to be up for, for negotiation. And that, of course, wouldn't be possible if there was, um, you know, if there was a very precise deal uh, fixed within the next few months? Yes, I think, I mean, Theresa May herself is probably the the, uh, clearest beneficiary of of the policy of strategic vagueness. Mm. I mean, I think she would definitely, (laughs) like many of these um, nasty surprises, um, uh, to be found out after the point of no return. I think I did see, I think you might be alluding to a former ambassador, Stephen Wall, who wrote in Prospect magazine um, about the, the possibility that she might acquiesce to a full customs union with the with the EU. I was a little sceptical about that myself because I think despite the, the air of confusion, um, there are a few hard and fast red lines that are important symbolically. And um, a full customs union with the EU um, completely pulls the rug out from underneath Liam Fox mm. and the Department of International Trade in terms of striking any trade agreements. Yeah. Um, a bridge too I, far. I think that's a bridge too far because I think that they want to waive something uh, at the end of Brexit or within a year or two of leaving mm. um, um, so that that one, I think, is uh, I, that for me is more in the cake and eating territory. She would like a customs arrangement that is so blindingly similar to a customs union that only a Brussels lawyer will be able to tell you the difference. <laughs> um, and that is in the cake and eating territory, which I think quite rightly the EU27 will smell a rat and say, all right, on, what, are, what are you trying to pull here? Mm. So I, I, I suspect we are really just circling back around this idea of a very advanced customs arrangement um, um, and, and just trying to cleave as close as we can to the status quo, whilst preserving this symbolic ability to go out and strike other trade deals. Okay, okay. I mean, and of course, I mean, of course, also there are very good reasons why that future relationship, or that you know, the the the, the, the element of discussing the future or defining the future relationship in 
in the withdrawal agreement might have to be kept vague, you know, regardless of what anybody actually wants, um, for the simple reason, I suppose, that there's just no time to get into the nitty gritty of it, because there's so much still in the withdrawal agreement to sort out. Uh, the stuff, the kind of stuff that you, Jennifer, were talking about a few minutes ago, um, but also this 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 never ending and, and, and ever recurring problem um, of the border in Ireland. The, I mean, the Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney was warning again this week that the divorce agreement and the transition period could both be at risk if there was no progress on this issue before June. Uh, but so far, there's still, I mean, there's still no sign of any movement at all, is there, Jennifer? No, there isn't. And, and I expect we'll hear more of this from the Irish government in the coming weeks, as, um, as Ireland is really keen to get the border issue sorted out by June and, and doesn't want this to sort of slip down the agenda and get lost in the, the final scramble for an agreement in the autumn. And, and Ireland will insist that this is one issue where you can't have the strategic vagueness on you and you really need to, mm. to nail down exactly what, um, what the border will look like after, after Brexit. So they're very keen to hold the UK to the, the, the EU's preferred backstop arrangement, which is um, remaining in the, well, Northern Ireland remaining in the customs mm. union and parts of the single market in the absence of any other solutions. And at the moment, no one sees those other solutions. They're, they're still uh, seen as magical thinking here in Brussels. So, And we really haven't seen any progress at all on that. We'll see further discussions on the Irish issue this week, but, but I don't think anyone's holding out hope of, of a breakthrough. So I think, yes, we'll keep on circling round this this really intractable problem for the, yeah, the Brexit talk. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and of course, I mean, and, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't forget either, I suppose, that we've have alluded to it a couple of times. But I mean, the most fundamental reason why there may need to be vagueness uh, on the, the end state is simply because the two sides, when it comes to the future relationship, are still so very far apart. Uh, I mean, London, to a large extent, is still talking all this sort of deep and special and imaginative and unique and flexible and, you know, the kind of now familiar strategy of Brexit by adjective. Um, and the 27 are still very much sticking A together and B firmly by their approach of, uh, the, you know, that this has to, all has to be played by the rules and there really is no scope for a lot of flexibility. I mean, fundamentally, there seems little prospect of that changing, does there, Dan, in the very near future? No, because I think at the heart of this, what we mustn't forget is that there's a, the, uh, there's a great big fib at the heart of Brexit, which um, is this pretense that the government has maintained throughout and the um, referendum campaign has maintained that um, this can be a painless um, process. And so, you know, the, 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 the owning up to that pain um, is um, going to be a very, very slow um, process um, because it's uh, the, the, the key to Theresa May staying in power. And I hate to sound overly cynical about it, but that's basically what's what it comes going down on to. Um, yeah, that's what it comes down to. This is a game of, of trying to flush out the truth about Brexit before the clock runs out. Mm. Yeah. OK, well, it's just uh, one final point then before we um, before we finish um, this call for a people's vote. 
that was launched uh, a couple of days ago amid some fanfare by a bunch of celebrities and businessmen and a cross-party lineup of MPs, uh, including Anna Soubry from the Conservatives, the Greens, Caroline Lucas, uh, Leila Moran from the Lib Dems, and of course Labour's Chuka Amuna. Um, Dan, what, I mean, does this stand any chance of winning a, a, a parliamentary majority? Uh, I mean, I guess there's three questions here. Really, first is, you know, can it can it gain a parliamentary majority? Um, why are they so keen on avoiding the term second referendum? Um, and is there any confidence that the result of any sort of popular vote would be any different? Well, uh, there's a lot in that. I suppose the first question is whether there's a majority. I think there, there clearly is a majority in the Commons of sceptical MPs about the process. Um, whether that can be manoeuvred into a vote that will um, force um, the government's hand on the final deal um, is another matter. Mm. And that's where it's a combination of sort of high politics and low tactics. And as I indicated a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, um, my optimism about that happening has faded quite a lot um, in recent weeks, largely because of intransigence in the Labour leadership. Um, and without mm. a shift in Corbyn, um, you really are um, fighting an uphill battle. Mm. So I fear possibly this is a little bit too little too late in terms of a popular campaign right. because um, the real battle perhaps has, be, has taken place within the Labour Party and has been lost. Right. Now, having said that, I think it's really important that they, that, that voice is heard. Um, to answer your question about the ambiguity over a second referendum, I think there's two issues going on there. One is that this is a pretty broad church. The, the coalition of groups involved in this encompasses those who um, are quite happy to say we would like a second referendum and others who I think at this stage are still more comfortable saying they would like the people to have a joy, a, a say on whether that's through um, a commons vote or a general election mm. or a referendum they'd like to keep that option open for various tactical political reasons so i think there's a little bit of fudge there to say to to apportion our fudge fairly on all sides <laughs> um but i also think it's indicative of the polling research which shows that a lot of the enthusiasm for this depends on how you ask the question if you ask right. people as we did in our recent um ICM poll, um, do they support um, uh, the right for the country to have a final say on the terms of the deal? You get um, a, a clear majority of the country in, in favour of a mm. final say on the terms of the deal. If you phrase it as a second referendum, which, by the way, let's just remember is technically incorrect, this is a third referendum. We had one when we came in, but anyway, it gives the impression that this is an iterative process that could go on for bloody ever, and that clearly when you start using language like that, people are much more sceptical. So I think there is also a bit of um, PR are a bit of kind of um, uh, picking the right words to try and bring together a group of people around a broader co concept. And the concept is that um, uh, the, the, the country at large deserves a say on, on how we go out and mm. what the terms of the final deal are. And if the final deal uh, sucks, then we need to have a chance to have a rethink. I think that um, uh, might um, that message is an uphill battle, but I think it's um, it, 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 it needs to be heard. It's gaining a bit of traction. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, uh, Jennifer, uh, I mean, how's all this viewed in in Brussels? Would the EU be open to to a sort of an about turn? I mean, how would it work? How might it work technically? It would surely. I mean, a, a second vote, whatever you call it, referendum, people's vote would. I mean, surely that would require an extension of Article Fifty, wouldn't it? I mean, how 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 might it work, and how is it seen in Brussels? 
Well, on that point, I think it's worth reading a speech that Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council, made last week in, in Dublin. And it, in many ways, it was a typical Tusk speech because it was stuffed full of cultural references from Sinead O'Connor to, to Ulysses. And <laughs> he did also have a, a reference to Brexit as well. And he said that... Um, he said that Brexit was something that uh, was one of the saddest moments in 21st century European history. And in fact, something that not only made him sad, but, but made him furious as well. And, and I think this is very much in line with what he said before, with what other EU leaders have said in, using different language. And I think there would be openness uh, completely to the UK changing its mind and to staying in the EU. Um, but how that would be done is, is a is a good question, and I think it really depends on on what the scenario is. So you could see um, you could see an extension of Article 50. Although my hunch is is that maybe that's not the most likely outcome, and maybe you're more likely to see the UK revoke Article 50, and then you have a debate among lawyers: Can the UK revoke Article 50 unilaterally? Mm. Where some in the EU say that the UK wouldn't be able to do this. But I think these legal arguments, uh, in a way, are sort of a, a moot point because it would be a political agreement between the UK and the EU uh, to stay. And I think if this unlikely scenario occurred where the UK was revoking Article 50, which, which personally I don't see happening, I think the, U, the EU would agree, but there would be a big, there would be a huge debate and a, a huge a, a settlement of terms that would be a, another uh, difficult process. Mm. Um, but that said, I don't see this happening. It's certainly not the assumption that the EU is, is working on. And there's some nervousness, I think, that that if there was a, a second referendum, where, where which was just done to try and pass a test, that there could be a, a, a large group of British people who felt cheated out of, the, of their vote, of that original vote to leave. Mm. And I think that causes nervousness among the EU of a backlash on the far right, on the far left stirring up Eurosceptic tendencies across the block. Yeah. And as one person said to me, because Brexit is not just about the UK, it's about the future of Europe. Mm. So whatever is agreed with the UK, whether it's Brexit or, or something else entirely, then that's going to reflect and, and, and affect the future of Europe. And that's what uh, the rest of the EU will always be guided by. Yeah, of course. OK, um, well, thank you very much, both of you. That's it, about it for this week. Uh, thanks, Dan, Jennifer, for joining me today. Please subscribe and review on all your favorite favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's as always Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer is Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.